Welcome to the Indoor AirPod, a show dedicated to our shared surroundings with industry heavyweights that are dedicated to designing, developing, manufacturing, and disrupting the status quo in order to make all our spaces cleaner and safer for everyone. Welcome to the Indoor AirPod, everyone. I'm Gary Moody, the host, and my guest today is Jeremy Begley. He's with HVAC Design Partners in Knoxville, Tennessee. Jeremy, great to have you. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate you reaching out and having me on. Before we start talking about uh, your work, which is very, very specialized, why don't you share, you know, kind of your career path? Uh, you know, take us back in time, obviously, to the present, and then we can talk about, you know, what you do and what your company is all about. Sure. I uh, got my start in this industry uh, around 2008, 2009, right after President Obama had been elected for his first time. Uh, up until that point, I was in the food and beverage uh, service industry uh, for about 15 years, and I had decided to go back to college and try to find something else to do. I wound up taking an environmental engineering class at a local college in Cincinnati, Ohio called uh, Cincinnati State University. And while I was taking that class, um, I went up to Washington, D.C., uh, for something, a, an event called Power Shift, which was a, basically a huge event that had to do with climate change and um, coal removal, mountaintops, stuff like that. And um, it was sponsored by the Obama administration. It had been put on before, but never to the extent that it did that year. 19,000 people from across the country actually attended that conference that year. And they were really starting to promote uh, President Obama's plan to fix the economy at that time, because it was also right after the economy had crashed in 2008. And it sort of, um, at, at that time, they were calling it the Yellow Brick Road Initiative. And it had to do with fixing the energy usage in people's homes and using that as a job creation mechanism uh, to create jobs like energy auditors and insulation inspectors and stuff like that, insulation installers, uh, what they were calling home performance, which is a known terminology today to all of us. Um, that's the industry that, that it was promoting. When I went up there, uh, Van Jones, uh, who was the um, short-lived environmental director for the Obama administration there, was the keynote speaker and he started talking about their plan to uh, use fixing energy in homes to fix the economy. And he referenced BPI as one of the organizations they were gonna use as a third party to do the training. And so once I left there, I started researching that. They ended up bringing the classes to the community college, the BPI classes. And um, I was one of the first people in the area to go through the, uh, what they were calling, uh, I forget, Got what they called it back then, building analyst, building analyst certification. I think they call it something different now. But um, I took that course. That was my introduction into this industry. I never knew anything about it before this, before that, or anything like that. And so then I um, went out and I tried to find a job doing that in my local market and doing, you know, energy audits basically is what that trained you to do. And pretty much all the, you know, play, they gave you a list. BPI has a nice list. They give you at the end, like, here's companies that may be interested in your service. It's like insulation contractors, HVAC contractors, window guys, stuff like that. So went to knocking on all those doors and, and I got big no's. Like people laughed about it. They like, that'll never be, an, you know, that's never going to be a um, viable job path. We don't believe in that. This green weenie stuff is going to go away. I mean, I heard it all. So um, 
later on, like uh, there was a guy named Andy Holhauser locally who uh, was from a different, he, he had just moved to Cincinnati, but he was from Cleveland and he had seen something on TV about a program that they were doing where they were actually using uh, energy audits as a job mechanism. This is before Obama had actually introduced the Aura Fund thing as a job mechanism. And his plan was to um, actually create a rebate program locally where you could get the energy audit for under the price that it would normally cost. And then there was going to be incentives for the contractors to come back and fix whatever the energy audit prescribed. Well, in a down, he did an amazing thing in a down economy where we had just had a market crash. He went around to the five local municipalities who never traditionally worked together on anything. They're all usually vying for the same money. And he got a million dollars between them to start this up, to get this startup. And so in his grant that he wrote to them, he said you had to be B BPI certified. And so then he started looking for BPI companies. Well, it was me and that was it. So he like contacted me and he said, hey, you want to... Uh, do this work. You're the only guy I can find around here. We got a bunch of money and we don't got nothing to do with it. So overnight I had a full blown, like it was just me as an energy auditor and one of my buddies going in and doing the audits and, you know, putting them on Twitter was brand new at the time. So like we started promoting them on yeah. Twitter, doing a bunch of stuff and, um, opened up, you know, I ended up opening my first company, which was Cincinnati Energy Solutions, because I couldn't find anybody that wanted to hire me to do this stuff. And so I, I really was interested in it. I got some private financing for the equipment, stuff like that. And uh, then pretty soon I was doing energy audits. And, you know, I was working for the Cincinnati Energy Alliance, which was the organization that the guy Andy created. And we were the only company. Then the Aura Funds hit. And so the Aura Fund, they actually got another company from up in Dayton, uh, which is a market just outside Cincinnati market to actually do energy audits too. So it was me and the other guy, this guy, Dale Dennis, uh, from Home Energy Checkup. We were the only two people in the market really doing the stuff. They started bringing some more people on, but there wasn't a big uptake. Then all of a sudden the R funds hit, which was the Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And it had money in there for the exact same thing that we were already doing, like a lot of money, like billions of dollars for the exact same business model that Andy had put together with the nonprofit. So he took some of the money that they had, wrote a grant, ended up getting the third largest award in the country, $17 million came to our market, the market blew up. Now every single company that had turned me down and laughed at me now wanted to be involved in the same industry that they had laughed at because all the money was there. And so, you know, it turned into a big viable thing. I, I mean, we all lived through the Aura Fund, so we know how long that lasted. As it started to trickle down, uh, I started to lose business to the HVAC companies and stuff like that because people, you know, their phones rang for those comfort complaints and all that stuff, no matter what, maybe the insulation companies. And so an HVAC company actually approached me and asked to buy me out. And so they bought me out. They bought all the assets. They didn't really buy the company out, but they bought all the assets and brought me on to help them uh, put home performance, you know, as part of what their business model was. So that was my introduction to the HVAC industry. Like I really started to understand. I When I was doing the energy audits, I owned the company. I started doing load calculations and I was writing my own uh work scopes and then it's hiring a company to do it but once i started working for the hvac company i really got to understand the inside out workings of an hvac company and everything that goes into making you know doing their job whether it's service on one side or install on the other or the logistics guys you know running the trucks and stuff like that i got to understand all that so it was a nice educational experience and they also owned a test and balance company and i did started doing a ton of work with the test and balance company and i got my feet wet in big hospital jobs and you know like some of the biggest wow. projects in, in the area. So I really got to understand the 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 HVAC industry inside and out from working with those guys. 
after uh, two years, I think, with them, I opened up a company that I still have, which was HVAC Two Home Performance, which is a consulting company doing energy audits and uh, HERS ratings. I have had every green certification that you could have by that time. Lead for Homes, uh, her, you know, HERS rating, BP, like five different BPI certifications. I started getting a I got familiar. I met Dave Richardson uh, from the NCI at a couple conferences, and him and I got to be good friends. And I started leaning on him. He's one of my mentors that you know really taught me a lot about how to actually do high performance HVAC and what all goes into that. And so I started getting a lot of the National Comfort Institute certifications and just really trying to learn from those guys because they, you know, know HVAC better than anybody I've ever met in my life. So um, that that's sort of like where I got to then and I or how I got to where I'm at now is I started doing subcontracted uh, HERS ratings for a company called Green Building Consulting. And as I did that, they started leaning on me for a little bit of the HVAC understanding. And we started seeing that uh, a lot of the HVAC contractors just were not submitting documentation that was required for the program, which was basic manual JSD. You know, it's really all it was at that time that, that they were asking for. And those guys were turning in stuff on the back of napkins, diagrams written on notebook pieces of paper, like all kinds of stuff that was definitely not what it was supposed to be and so once we understood that you know these guys that were the implementers of the green building program they didn't really understand the hvac stuff and once i started pointing it out to them they were like wow this is crazy like we didn't never you know never realize that these guys weren't compliant we just always thought we could take whatever was there and so they hired me to start uh, designing an HVAC review process for them where they could really actually review the HVAC documentation and, and make sure that it was correct. And we really did, like I will say in the Cincinnati market, like we moved the needle in that market because now guys are doing H, they're doing low calculations. And, and back then it was like beating them with a stick. Like they hated it, you know, just kicking and dragging and screaming, but there's still some people outliers that don't want to do it. But a lot of guys started to value it. They saw how their call, their callbacks were dropping and how the, you know, they weren't having to go back to uh, fix stuff from the, that the green building program required because they were already doing it. So there was, they started seeing a lot of value in doing it that way. Okay. And, I, yeah, I can appreciate that. Let me ask this, Jeremy. How has, in your opinion, how has HVAC design changed from back in the Obama days to 2023? And also, where do you think it's going to be five years from now? That is a great question. So, and I, I like both ends of that question. So, I, I, uh, so how it's changed is there wasn't nothing called residential HVAC design in 2009. Like it literally didn't exist. There was guys doing load calculations and stuff like that. And there was like one company that I knew of actually, I'll say Energy Vanguard, they were getting in HVAC design at that time, but really uh, they were subbing their stuff out too to the same guy, which was Christoph Irwin down in Texas from Positive Energy. He was like the very first person that I ever knew that actually did real HVAC design, a residential HVAC design. Like he, he's one of the OGs of the industry and his name doesn't get mentioned a lot, but that guy is, he knows more about HVAC. He was a, um, I don't want to misquote what he was, but he was a aeronautic engineer or something like that by trade uh, before he got in. And I think he's pretty much a Savion genius, too, from what I understand about him. So he really was the first person doing it. And then Allison uh, eventually got a guy on, uh, Chris, Chris 
Gideon, I forget, I think that's his name. And then he he was doing some HVAC design for Allison, and then Allison just started growing. You know, Allison is the the one of the godfathers of building science, and so he's you know understands everything about anything that has to do with any of this stuff. So he was able to produce drawings and manual J load calculations for people, and so those guys really right. started bringing the industry around. And I sort of modeled what I was doing after those two after those two guys when we started doing our version of um, residential HVAC design as a third party provider. Now there's a lot like now if you open get online and you Google you know residential HVAC design or manual JSD, there's a shop in, on every corner basically. And now like a lot of the rating organizations have started to pick that up. And now they're, they're you know, purporting to do some version of HVAC design. I look at it a little different differently. Like uh, what a lot of these guys are doing is more compliance documentation than it is actual HVAC design. Like we do a true version of HVAC design where like we sit down, we do, we start with the load calculations. The number one thing to dry, you know, in our mind, the load calculation is the end all be all, just like the energy model in the uh, Raider world is the end all be all of what what gets put in and what you need to do. Like the load calculation is the starting point to tell us everything that we need to do in the design. And then, you know, we follow the manual procedures. But beyond that, we actually frame it like a true engineering design would be. We're giving you the plans and specs. We're giving you the you know mechanical specifications. We're giving you everything that you need to take it out to bid and uh, get a true bid, just like you would with any other plan set, mechanical plan set that you're going to get from an MEP organization. And we are doing, we are doing true MEP too as well. Like I have MEP. I, I do what I call... So there's a term in marketing right now that's a big buzzword. It's called fractional engineer or fractional marketing. And it's basically like you could be a CEO of five different companies and help run all those companies and have an income stream from all those companies because you're the one guy that understands the niche of that company that needs to do. And we're doing a version of that now. I actually have a marketing plan that I just wrote that I'm going to start promoting something called fractional engineering. So I took the okay. key. I took the word. Uh, the phrase, I should say, from from the marketing, fractional marketing, and we are going to do always what we're good at and what we understand and what we're very uh, in line to do and qualified to do, which is the residential HVAC design portion of it. But we also have very strong MEP partners that we bring in from the outside that can provide the rest of the documentation that is needed for a full MEP set. Okay, let me, let me ask you this. Uh, you're, I'm sure you're aware of this. Many people that are listening may not be, but uh, a month or so ago, uh, Jeremy, the President of the United States, President Biden, the, the administration, I think it was something like 25 different U.S. state governors said that they want 20 million heat pumps installed uh, by, what is it, 2030. What type of uh, things are you hearing about heat pumps out there? Uh, with all the different people you work with? Well, we just did a series with MeasureQuick, uh, a, a webinar series with MeasureQuick uh, called Heat Pump Hell, The Road to Mass Heat Pump Adoption. So uh, that's a five-episode uh, series. It's really good. It's been really well-received. And we brought in a lot of experts to talk about what it's going to be like if we're going to meet that demand. And I can tell you that the gist of it is these contractors out here are not ready. The designers aren't ready. Nobody's ready for what the green community is asking to be done, like in the electrification world and stuff like that. Like there's a lot of nuance to installing heat pumps. There's a lot of nuance to designing with heat pumps. And there's a lot of different uh, implement 
of things that need to be implemented for them to work correctly and get the bang for their buck that everybody wants out of them. Because, you know, everybody wants to look at or it started out. It's changing. The, the narrative's changing a little now. But when it first started hitting, everybody wanted to Oprah, Oprah Winfrey it. They wanted to be like, you get a heat pump. You get a heat pump. Hey, you over there. Here's a heat pump for you, too. You know, and it just is not it's not going to work like that. It's not a Band-Aid solution for a bad house, which is how it was being pre presented. You know, and what, so what type of questions do your clients ask you regarding indoor air quality? The main question that we get on indoor air quality is uh, how can we maintain a healthy home? I mean, and it's a very general question because people don't know a lot about what an air door, indoor air quality means beyond they know that it, their house needs to be healthy. And that's what they want to understand is how you're going to help them achieve that. And, you know, the four tenets of indoor air quality are the same thing they've always been, which is dilution filtration and uh, moisture removal uh, you know there's that, that that's three of them uh, or three tenants i should say and that that's really where where we live and die at and then there then there's the fourth which is you know the uv lighting and stuff microbial microbe uh removal and things like that but in a home is if you're if you're diluting the air and filtering the air and you're getting the moisture out you've got most of the way there you're not going to need a lot of the uv stuff and all these other little fancy things that do have a place but maybe not in residential like i know in commercial we've been using uv lighting and uh cleaning for a long time and you know i did a lot of test and balance work in hospitals and i've always in the ors and the different you know very high germ areas where they need to keep the, the keep it super clean they always have some kind of uv lighting in there that's doing some kind of cleaning or scrubbing or stuff like that even in the air streams and and things like that but i don't I personally, this is my personal opinion, I don't believe that it's necessary to have that stuff in a home and to achieve the indoor air quality that we need. Like we can do it with the old methods that we've been using, which is dilution and, and filtration uh, mainly and also moisture removal because moisture uh, m removal and also maintaining, you know, on the other side of it, maintaining a little moisture, making sure we don't go under that 30% relative humidity mark in homes is going to do everything for yeah. the quality of the air. Some experts, Jeremy, uh, and you, you probably are aware of this, but there are at least some experts that believe that dry air, low humidity, which is common in the winter months, is more conducive to the transmission of disease. Uh, do people ask you about their humidity level? Uh, you think they're even aware of their humidity level and this VO2 uh, level in their home, and which leads me maybe also to another point. Uh, what's your thoughts about the future long-term of indoor air quality monitoring? Okay, so I'm going to, let's let's take that in a couple parts. First off, um, what was the first part that you, that you asked me? Well, you, you, most of the public are laypersons. Obviously, they're not engineers, they're not, uh, you know, scientists. They, they know very little about indoor air quality, so they have to speak to people. But regarding the level of moisture, moisture is a huge problem. Yep. And you're, you're well aware of this. Too much, it's not good, and too low. But we're going into the winter months. And again, uh, there, are, there are definitely experts out there that think that dry air is more conducive to the transmission of disease. 
I do believe that to be the case. I mean, there's scientific studies that back that up and things like that. Like the drier the air, the the the, the moisture, for, especially like if we're talking in terms of COVID and things like like those yeah. type of of illness or viruses, airborne uh, transmitted diseases, it lingers. It's easier to transmit. I mean, the the lighter the air is, the the more the stuff can move. It makes sense. So like, the moisture content in the air, I think, does help prevent the transmission of those and there is there like we haven't heard much about it lately but back when COVID was still a topic on everybody's mind like on the forefront of everybody's mind we were talking about doing uh HVAC systems even in homes that had a COVID mode where it could bump the humidity up and it could you know bump the ventilation up to at to levels that you weren't normally operating at if there was a COVID you know if there was suspected COVID or disease or somebody in the house you know had that and they needed to be isolated then we could we could uh hit that button and turn those things on I never actually designed a system that did that but I had a ton of conversations with people that were thinking that way originally. It just never came to fruition in any of the designs that we did. Now, I do want to answer the second part of your question about the monitoring. Now, I do want to circle back and talk about the future of HVAC too, that you asked about HVAC design, because I think them two, yeah. those two things go hand in hand. So I do feel like, and I am a strong advocate of, all of the indoor air quality monitoring and any kind of automation that you can put in place that is going to allow these things to operate and do what they need to do outside the control of the homeowner. Because like you said, most of them are laymen anyway, and they don't understand what needs to be done. They just want it to happen in their house. So like, I feel like the automation piece is the, is the next level of HAC design. That's going to be a big deal. And I don't only say that on um, the automation of what we're doing at homes. I think a lot of the design, process is going to get automated as well very soon with the advent of AI. Like the energy modeling piece of it, the load calculation piece of it, I'm working with a couple companies right now. We're trying to develop an AI load calculation and energy modeling uh, bot that can just do we enter the plans, we put in the parameters and it does the model or it does the load calculation because there's no reason for us to be spending physical time on doing that stuff when AI is to the point where it can do it for you if it knows what it needs to do. So one, that, one of, yeah, one of my favorite topics is also the the humble HVAC duck. Uh, obviously, they're oftentimes no, they're out of sight. Nobody cares. Uh, and most people, if you could actually see it, aren't looking up at the ceiling. Uh, as I recall, Ashray said at one time that 75% of all buildings in America have HVAC duct leakage. Uh, they're leaky ducts. And in residential, I think Ashray had indicated uh, in the past, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, 10 to 30% is the amount of leakage in homes. Do, do your clients, the end users, uh, do they actually have any idea about the critical importance of a, a well-designed and installed HVAC duct? Absolutely not. Um, I, you know, I nowadays we have code regulations in place, and also in, in a lot of places have green building programs that are going on that require even a little better than the code does as far as metrics for for duct tightness to make sure that there's not a lot of leakage and they recognize it as an energy problem. I don't think there's still enough credence given to the fact that it's also an indoor air quality problem. You're sucking stuff in from unwanted spaces and bringing it into the house every time the system pressurizes. So that's a big deal too. But like, existing homes it's a huge problem still and nobody understands it homeowners don't know a thing about it i had a guy call me in he's been trying to fix 
a comfort problem for seven years in his house. And he's had all these different people in. They've done all these HVAC modifications and put a bigger blower in, which started causing other problems because his duct his duct system was not suited for that blower. It wasn't designed for that blower. And so it was like pulling the system, the duct system apart in places and sucking the filter in and doing all kinds of stuff. And it was all the whole entire problem. My entire time was duct leakage. He had 1100 CFM and duct leakage. It was all dropping out in the basement and the first floor before it ever got up to the second floor. So like that was, if they would have solved that problem, seven years ago he would have been fine seven years ago and not spent all the money that he spent trying to fix a problem that nobody was able to identify yeah well you you hit the nail on the head hvac duct leakage is also an indoor air quality threat through what's referred to oftentimes as back drafting there are millions of people that that live work and go to school in in real close proximity to heavily trafficked highways and uh, as you know that you know what occurs outdoors can end up indoors and be very harmful. Regarding, uh, you know, the indoor air quality monitoring, I think it has an enormous long-term future. And simply because it's not a simple subject for a layperson to understand, but I just think the public is gonna wanna have an idea what's in the air that they're breathing. Uh, that's number one. And number two, I, I think you, had to, you also uh, came across, if I understood you correctly, you think the future in even residential is HVAC automation. Absolutely. I think that everything's controls is the not controls is the final frontier. Like for sure, that is the final frontier. Like these guys, even with the heat pump technology, yeah, we're getting to some places we haven't gotten before with these heat pumps, but it's at its peak. You're not going to get much more efficient or much better than what they're doing right now. It's all going to be incremental from what they have on the market right now. And it's going to continue to improve. But I know I could tell you for a fact, five years ago, carrier corporation stopped putting any other re, re, uh, R&D dollars into gas furnaces. They said, we're never going to, de- yeah. we're not going to develop gas furnaces any farther than they are right now. We know that heat pumps are the next thing and that's where all of our money is going to go. That same exact thing is going to happen with heat pumps sooner than later. There's not going to be much more places that they can go with heat pumps than what they're already getting out there right now. But the thing that they can improve is the connectivity of all the pieces of equipment working together and the controls that drive that. And that is a, I'm actually involved with a project right now. We're just now starting up on it uh, with Haven IQ, Haven IAQ, which is a controller that actually it it monitors and will allow the HVAC system to react to what it actually is, is detecting in terms of opening ventilation or closing and some other things in the home that it's able to do uh, with those guys and with Measure Quick and Conduit, which is an HVAC, a, a newer uh, a startup uh, HVAC load calculation, walkthrough load calculation software. And we're all talking about common programming language so that all these things, sort of like what commercial backnet did for commercial, you know, 15, 20 years ago when it got mandated, like, hey, because there was a in commercial, like people may not realize it, but like for a test and balance guy 15 years ago to go into a building was a nightmare because it could have three different types of communications in the same exact building, depending on on who's been in there tinkering around and none of the stuff talked to each other. And it was very hard to get a building to work right, like much harder than it even is now. And it's still pretty hard. So so, yeah, they, the government mandated, hey, you guys got to fix this. You got to do something to make all the, you know, so all this logic can, can, can be the same and talk to each other. And that's where Bagnet came in and it, it connected everything. And so we need something similar in residential HVAC for sure. Like there's, we have I'm, to have it. I'm on the same page as you. As you. 
Um, I've asked a lot of contractors in my past how often they see an absolutely dirty, filthy HVAC filter that's even terribly clogged. And they say all the time. And it's it's understandable. Pe people just don't think to change their filters. They got so many other things to do. What do you know about, do you think America has an HVAC filter change problem? Oh, they absolutely do. And I don't think that any, you could have a, like, they do have thermostats right now. Like all the major manufacturers have filter alerts on their thermostats right now. And they're still not getting changed. I mean, it's, do you know who changes their filters? People that can afford to pay somebody to come in and change their filters. That's who changes their filters. I, I go into the more affluent communities and they have a, maintenance or cleaning person that has a set schedule and they come in once a month and they check all the filters and they change them and that's the type of diligence that it takes to really be able to maintain you know that level of filtration that we need so i don't know exactly what the solution is that because that's more of a people problem than a uh monitoring or you know changing problem unless we can figure something out where you know you have an android bot an amazon bot that comes in yeah. changes your filter and does it while you're gone and you pay for some kind of subscription service well, maybe it, that's the future i don't know you know yeah the way technology is uh, the ideal situation might be that somehow the hvac system owner the, the residential homeowner gets message through uh obviously their phone that they need to change their filter but th they need to be alerted and, and i know how people are certainly like you do they'll just they got lots of other things to do hey did you happen to see uh, on october 29th the cbs 60 minutes segment regarding the air that we breathe uh joe allen from harvard was on i didn't see it okay yeah, it, it seems like there's quite a people tuned in, at least in my LinkedIn network, but it was all about the air that we breathe indoors. And there's an unprecedented amount of environmental news that's reported every day worldwide, Jeremy, but the other environments, the environment that we spend most of our time in, it gets very little recognition. Let me ask you something. What is your definition of clean air indoors, if somebody was would to ask you? Um, I clean air indoors be fine. That's a good question. I don't know that I can put a, I could tell you the elements that, you know, you need for clean air, but I don't know that I have an exact definition of clean air. I guess it would be healthy, breathable, uh, correct moisture content, uh, air. Okay. I mean, that, that's the best I, I, I could give you there without getting into some very specific definitions of, of how we should be maintaining the air. You bet. And it's, I didn't mean to ask you a trick question. It's a complicated, it's a complicated question, but the definition of clean water, drinking water, that is, uh, yeah, yeah, potable, according to USGS, is water that's devoid of pollutants that are harmful if you come in contact with them. There's never been a consensus amongst a combination of leading authorities and experts what clean air indoors actually is. There's a, there is an ASHRAE definition. Let me give it to you. All right. So the ASHRAE definition of acceptable indoor air quality is what they call it. It is air towards which a substantial majority of the occupants express no dissatisfaction with respect to odor and sensory irritation in which there are not likely to be contaminants at concentrations that are known to pose a health risk. So that is, that's the ASHRAE definition of indoor air quality that they put on the beginning of all their, their IAQ standards. Yeah, that's, that a, they put out. That's, that's a great definition. Hey, regarding wildfire, wildfire smoke, obviously 
and unfortunately, over 100 million people were exposed to it in the what the Midwest, the Upper Midwest, the East. And, you know, it's very unusual. Wildfire smoke is is has always been historically out west. How is that going to change your thought process about designing future HVAC systems, assuming there's going to be more wildfire smoke in the future? It just needs to be more on-demand filtration and, and ventilation and things like that. Like that's that exactly what we were talking about, the automation and the on-demand stuff. Like that has to go into your design when you're thinking about that. I have heard, you know, guys, I've actually been in discussions that are pretty heated about, you know, duck cleaning. Guys are like, oh, you should clean your ducks to help with wildfires. It's a bunch of poppycock. Like you're not going to clean your ducks and clean your way out of anything that's coming from wildfires. Like you might get it clean once, but the minute that system kicks back on and pressurizes, you're going to be right back in the same exact situation. So those guys are just, you know, they're, they're pushing their duck cleaning because they know they're going to get it five or six times from the same people if they see even a little bit of benefit from it. But there has to be a better solution. Like you have to be able to, to control the source of the contaminant. That is the gold in all air indoor air quality, no matter what. So to be able to do that is, is going to require some sort of sensors and automation for sure to be successful. Well, doing that. Regarding uh, the type of filter, MERV 13, of course, or, or HEPA, what, what do you recommend to clients? Uh, in terms of the highest rated filter that the HVAC system can work with? It's all a design. It can work with whatever you design it around. It's the thing, like the design is the key to everything. I always say, so I have a little phrase that I like to use. I say, if you don't design, you're going to pay down the line. And that's, that is the hundred percent truth. Like you have to be able to design for whatever you're putting on there. Like a MERV 13 could be fine. A HEPA filter could be fine as long as it's designed for the system. And I wouldn't want anything less than a MERV 13 on my system. Uh, Personally, like I want to be able to facilitate that level of filtration on my HVAC system without causing problems for my HVAC system. You bet. So, do, you, do, some, do you sell directly? Uh, are you hired directly sometimes by homeowners? I try not. I try not to be because I do, It's it's a very difficult when you're working with somebody that is building their own home. It's a very difficult relationship to maintain from a design perspective because people want to change things a lot more than somebody who understands the flow of business would do, but I'm not a hundred percent opposed to it. I do do, I do have quite a few designs out there actively right now. And ones that we've done in the past that the homeowner has hired us to do, we'll get on our website and I do, I'll do, you know, in-home inspections and stuff like that too, depending on what level they are. And, it, you know, if it's financially viable for our business model, uh, so the answer is, yeah, sometimes I do deal with homeowners. I try to mostly deal with builders, contractors, engineers, and architects. That's where our, um, that's our preferred, you know, clients, but we, we will do homeowners depending on what the job is. You mentioned architects. I think what you do, and I think architects and certainly engineers have enormous, uh, potential to help protect people and they're held tied to IAQ. Uh, there's mm -hmm. no question about it. The, you know, the, the people out there in the world, they're laypersons. They don't understand anything about an HVAC duct or moisture control. Uh, there's just so much to it. Hey, we're, we're starting to run low on time, Jeremy. Um, where can people find you on social media? Um, the two main places that we maintain the most uh, is I'm on LinkedIn all the time. That's how we yes. met, obviously, was LinkedIn. I'm, I'm very involved in the um, high performance industry on uh, 
high performance community, high performance building community on LinkedIn is what I'm trying to say. So that, you know, that we're, we're, we're active there all the time. Uh, we also do post on Twitter quite frequently. We have a Facebook page. I'm going to be a lot more active um, on my HVAC to home performance page after the first of the year uh, for that company. I'm sort of moving away from the HVAC design uh, moniker and moving back under HVAC design or HVAC to home performance. Uh, and that's just a business decision. It has nothing to do with uh, what either company does. I'll be doing the same exact set of things that I'm doing under HVAC design under uh, HVAC to home performance. So um, that that's where I'm at. And you got, you know, you, my name is out there. If you Google my name, you'll find me on, you know, 20 different social sites. But LinkedIn is the main place where we play at. Okay. And I, I'd like to add to it. I, I, I really appreciate that, that you recognize it's not just LinkedIn, but LinkedIn's really been great to you yep. uh, as it has me. But the idea, uh, the marketing influence is the future of it. It's all online. It's to be on Twitter, Facebook, yep. Instagram, every which way. Uh, anybody can beat it. Simply have their brand out there, and, and what you do, it's just very specialized. So I, you're doing a great job. I'd like to thank you for your time, and, and certainly would like to have you back at a later date. Up to, uh, I definitely would love to come back, and I appreciate you having me out. And I love what you're doing here. I think this is going to be take off like wildfire, and you're going to have a a lot of success uh, with this podcast because people definitely want to hear about what you what the topics that you're covering. Yeah. The more the more that we all talk about indoor air quality, it'll help educate the public. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that people just need to have information that's, of, you know, it's good information. And so anyway, thank you very much for your time today, Jeremy. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Indoor Air Pod, produced by Gaslight STL, your podcast partner. Be sure to give our show a follow to keep up with upcoming guests and topics. And please, Reach out with any questions or guest suggestions.